Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Today, ladies and gentlemen, today we are talking about a theme as Pesach is coming. It is very soon, two weeks from tomorrow, or two weeks from Shabbos, really, from Saturday evening. We are going to be sitting at our Pesach Seders. And then, of course, we're going to be celebrating with our families the Yom Tov. And then we're going to take an opportunity to enjoy our crispy, crunchy, delicious matzah. And people oftentimes wonder the history of the matzah, which is what I want to share with you a little bit about today. So today, indeed, we're going to be doing things a little bit differently. It's a little bit more historical. Although, to tell you the truth, I was once counseling a couple and... The young man says to me, you know, every time I do something wrong, my wife, she gets all historical with me. And I said to him, you mean hysterical, right? He says, no, I mean historical. I said, what do you mean historical? He says, well, it's always, she brings up the whole history of everything I ever did wrong. Okay, today we're not doing anything like that. We're just going to talk about the history, the rise of the machine matzah, as we said today's topic is about. And I think you'll find this fascinating because... The history of the matzah is something that, you know, we eat the matzah, we enjoy the matzah, but did you ever pay attention to understand and realize the history of it? Okay, you go into the shops now and everybody's going into kosher world and, and uh, the hypermarkets and wherever else you're going to do your, your shopping for Pesach and you see that the shelves are lined with boxes and boxes of matzahs and mostly a lot, most people afford the square matzahs that are uniform and and thankfully they're not so expensive. These matzahs seem to tend to be more affordable than your handmade version. And of course, it is a very common and they, they come in different price ranges. But it's important to know and understand the difference between the different types of square matzahs. And the dip and, and the round matzah and its history and understand where it came from and what preference is there in using one over the other. Now, obviously, there could be certain preferences related perhaps to uh, economics or maybe not just economics. You know, you might prefer spelt, but by the way, you could get spelt as shmura or you could get spelt as the non-shmura variety. So this is the thing, if you want to know the history, the square matzahs have not been around that long. They've been around since the mid-1800s. That's all. Since the mid-1800s, that's when the square matzahs came to the scene. And you might know, and you might be familiar with Manashevitz. Mano Manashevitz, right? You can see here in the picture. In fact, one of the seniors who attends our Chabad Seniors program, sometimes he's on air, Sam Manashevitz who is a nephew or great-nephew of the one who is most famous for Manashevitz matzahs, Manashevitz wines. Whatever the case is, the Manashevitz is the popular square matzahs. Of course, you could get straights. There's some other versions and varieties. I believe the previous, uh, the Av based in here, uh, well, he's moved to Israel, Rabbi Kerstag, I think he was also involved for some time in a local matzah bakery as well. I'm not sure the name of it, maybe Rakuzin's. Whatever the case, then we have the matzahs, and I have some here. We're hopefully getting them out to our seniors' deliveries tomorrow and over the next three weeks. 
that all of you should be receiving our handmade Shmura Matzah, so you could at least have one for your Seder. And if you know any specific seniors who need matzah for the Seder, please let me know. We could add them onto our weekly delivery list. Those, if you're going to go in the shops, will come at a premium. They're going to cost you a lot more. In fact, they might be six to seven times the price. Why? Because they're special. Because they're handmade. They are the traditional matzah. And because each piece is carefully crafted by human hands producing it. Sort of like a Bentley that is handmade. And so it costs more. There's more effort put into it. Now, in many homes, the round handmade Shmura Matzah is the only matzah you'll find. Me growing up, and until this very day in my home, you'll only find the shmura, round shmura matzah at my table, right? That's the matzah that we use. The question, of course, is why? Why do we prefer the shmura matzah, okay? Why do people insist on using specifically the handmade variety versus the cheaper machine-made? Make sense? You know, in the, in, in the current modern era, why do we need something that is made with the intensity of hand labor that's so astronomically more expensive? Who needs that? Can't everyone just use Manischewitz or Rakuzins or whatever other brand that's much cheaper and call it a day? Wouldn't we all like to save some money for our community? Wouldn't that be the ideal? So today we're going to discuss the fascinating history of the machine-made matzah and why many people still insist on using the handmade variety despite the troubles and the costs involved. I'm not trying to convince you of anything. Maybe I am, you'll see. You know, it's subliminal marketing here. And maybe at the end of today's share, you will be a little bit more enlightened and understand the specific reason why we try and prefer to use the handmade matzah at least for the Seder night. Now, one idea that I want to just emphasize before we begin is we can break down matzahs into four categories. Okay, let's start with the beginning with the lowest category. And here we're going to talk about, this is very simple, I call it the fourth place matzah. These are kosher for Pesach, non-shmura machine matzah. What I didn't include in here, which would be in fifth place, would be non-kosher matzah or non-kosher for Pesach matzah. You can make that fifth and sixth categories. You know, I walked into a spa in Pretoria a while ago and I saw that they had matzah on display. This was actually probably August time. Nobody's eating matzah. I looked in the box. I couldn't find a hechsher, but it said the words matzah on it. And I think the rest of it was in Afrikaans. It certainly didn't have our Vaisden's hechsher. It didn't have anyone else's hechsher as far as I was able to tell. Now, the... Those matzahs, they probably don't have any ingredients that aren't kosher, but nobody's supervising to check if those matzahs are kosher or not, and therefore I wouldn't recommend you eating them at all. Then you might even have matzahs that are made that aren't kosher for Pesach. Now, why they're not kosher for Pesach? Maybe the factory has other foodstuffs that are being made and baked there, and therefore they're not going to be kosher for Pesach. 
So you can't even consider the fifth and sixth place matzahs. One's not kosher at all. One's not kosher for Pesach. Let's go to fourth place for Pesach. And be careful because you'll find many such matzahs, even from Manashevitz and other reliable super, supervised matzahs, that they're the lowest in the category of kosher for Pesach matzah products. They have all the deficiencies of machine matzah that we're going to discuss. And they're not shmura. That means they're not supervised as matzah should be. And therefore, they certainly should not be used, at least not for your Seder. They're probably also the cheapest matzah you're going to find out there. You could use it if you would like, but certainly not for your Seder. And they're not the ideal matzah. You're not going to find it on a Chabad matzah uh, Pesach table at all. Okay? The next category we're going to talk about is, let's call it the third place. This is Shmura machine Matzah. Now these have some degree of shmura. They have been watched, supervised for from you know from for some time. Whether it's from the time of harvest or from the time that it reaches the bakery, it's a, a separate discussion. Maybe we'll touch on it just now. Probably from the when the time the wheat is ground, and they can be used according to some opinions even for the seder because they are shmura matzah. So if you overlook the deficiency of the fact that it's machine made. Now, by the way, I say deficiency, but to tell you the truth, some rabbis prefer machine matzah. So again, I'm presenting it to you today from Chabad perspective of preferences, but I must put that caveat out there that there are some rabbinic authorities who prefer the machine variety of matzah for certain reasons, including the fact that they are, you know, machine is less prone to the fallibility of human error. The next category, so this category again, although it has certain deficiency in it because of the machine element, according to some opinions, nevertheless, it is Shmura and therefore can be used for your Seder. Let's go to our second place, second best option for Matzah, and this is Hand Shmura Matzah, and this is from the time of grinding. These have all the benefits of handmade matzah, which as you're going to see the importance of handmade, that you're engaged and involved in the production of this matzah. But many posts can maintain that they are not sufficiently shimura because they were only supervised from the time of grinding. Okay, The ideal shimura matzah that we want to look at is... The matzah that we're going to say, we'll call it the first place matzah. First prize, the one you want to ideally use if you're following Chabad tradition and custom. And this will be the handmade shmura matzah from the time of harvest. And these are the matzahs that we prefer to use. It's the absolute shmura and absolutely handcrafted. And this is what ideally one should use for their Seder. And of course, this is the matzah that if you're going to receive matzah from Chabad house, that you're going to get. Some of our matzahs come from Ukraine or Kfar Chabad in Israel. And that's the ideal matzah you want to arrange for at least your Seder and perhaps even for your usage throughout the entire festivities of Pesach. So in short, besides for the difference between machine and hand, there are obviously varying degrees of shmura. Call mishats katsira, that depends if it's from the time of harvest or from the time of grinding the wheat. So as you can see, it depends on 
there are different levels. And this is a critical point because the matzah that you buy in the shops, especially those that are much cheaper, they're cheaper for a reason. Perhaps they're not being shmura, they're not being supervised from the time of harvest. And therefore, there's less expense involved, less people to pay, less cost, and you can bring the price down, but it also brings the quality down. Now you might tell me, the quality of the matzah is the same, that's right. But the quality of the shmura, the quality of the supervision, which is what we want to try to achieve, is not being met. So that's part of the difference that you're going to find in prices of matzah between handmade versus machine, and shmura versus less shmura or not shmura at all. And you want to go for the ideal that is shmura from the time of grind, from the time of harvest, and it is handmade. That is the best, the ideal matzah you want to look at. And today we're going to discuss a debate that raged around the machine-made matzah, regardless which matzah you're going to be using. But if you go back to machine versus handmade, and this is something very, you know, fascinating that I learned a couple of years ago, and I feel like it's important to share that people should know and understand. And please feel free to interrupt, unmute yourself at any point if you have any question. Of course, I had some matzahs prepared to show you, but they're not here, so at least you see the, the picture here of what your handmade matzah looks like. And I'm sure you all know very well what the machine-made matzah looks like. We know that we Jews have been eating matzah for over 3,300 years. In fact, this Pesach will make it 3,333 years that we are consuming matzah. And it hasn't gone stale. How do you like that? In fact, the mitzvah of matzah is one of the first mitzvahs in the Torah that the Jewish people were ever given. When we were leaving Egypt, the Torah gives us the instruction of eating matzah. We all know that instruction. We discussed it at length in previous classes. And how do you think that matzah came about for millennia? In Jewish homes, women or men, family members, everyone was spending their time rolling their pins, making matzah at home. That's what was being done. Everybody made their matzah at home. It was historically a handmade process. Machines did not exist. Okay, just a, uh, just a minute. I see there's a comment, uh, question. There's also a fact that the matzah that Israel has left these were handmade. So to be authentic. Yes, absolutely. So that's another great point. Thank you, Vivian, for that. The fact that our ancestors, when they left Egypt, we want to make something as similar to that as possible to relive, to resemble the experience that our ancestors had during their exodus from their slavery in Egypt. So with that in mind, that's another good reason to be eating the handmade variety. And it was always considered a, an honor, a, a privilege for people to bake matzahs. In fact, you could have baked your matzah at home probably every day of Pesach except for Shabbos. You could bake it fresh at home. And throughout history, and I can tell you as a child growing up in New York, we experienced going to the matzah bakery to make our matzahs in person. And we'll be back in a moment. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9. Hi FM, I'm Rabbi Ari Kiebman. Great to be with you right here. And in fact, in Shulchan Aruch, in the Code of Jewish Law, it talks about the idea that the greatest scholars 
would make an effort to bake the matzahs themselves. I recall the Rebbe would go to bake matzahs, and this is something throughout history. People would go to bake the matzah at least for the, what's matzah's mitzvah? For the mitzvah, at least the performance of the mitzvahs on, on the Seder night when you have to eat the matzah, the rest of the nights is in case you want some carbs with your food, right? So it's best to be personally involved, engaged in the mitzvah. You could supervise others doing it, or you could be involved in it yourself. Here in Johannesburg, other than Chabad House's children's model matzah bakery, I'm not aware of any matzah factories, so I don't know if there's any way you could actually be involved in baking your matzah here. But you could buy matzah for yourself. But the Shulchan Aruch talks about the sages would be involved in baking the matzah themselves, they would supervise the workers, they would encourage, they would be involved, they would help out. And so the Shulchan Aruch tells us it's proper for every person to do the same, to personally involve themselves in the mitzvah, because as it is with all mitzvahs, it's better to perform a mitzvah personally than to have someone else do it on your behalf. Now, of course, once upon a time, what were people busy with? Maybe in the desert, they were basking in the spirituality. So they had all the time in the world to bake their matzahs. But then as centuries progressed, and people you know, uh, were getting busier with themselves, whether they were busy in their agricultural affairs or other matters, so commercial matzah bakeries opened up. And that eliminated the need for every family to bake their own matzah. Probably when commercial bakeries opened in general. And that's when people started to get whatever pastries and other things from the bakery that you didn't bake at home. So if you didn't bake your bread at home, you didn't need to bake your matzah at home. And that's when all of a sudden people were started to buy their matzah from bakeries. But even still it continued like that. Matzah baking and bakeries continued on for centuries. And it was done the same way. How different can it be done even in a commercial setting where people are baking in mass production? Also done by hand. Same thing. Many people doing it. Perhaps they had some kind of a assembly line, but it was still done by hand. And it was still something, I guess people, that was their business that they would bake matzahs. The work actually was physically demanding, if you know what baking matzahs entails, and I used to do it every single year. In fact, last year I took my kids to a matzah bakery in New York to experience it themselves and to be involved in the baking of the matzahs. Because it has to all be done within 18 minutes from the time that the water touched the flour at the beginning of the kneading process, all the way through till you get your final baked matzah, all has to be within 18 minutes. So this is a tedious task. And the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, actually devotes a whole section to discussing how the matzah is baked and tells us many of the rules and laws that are associated with it. So we know that it's a process and there's a whole to do so, how the matzah should be baked and the bulk of the laws talk about... how to ensure that the dough does not turn into chametz during this entire process. Well, let's fast forward a little bit because something happened which changed the fate and face of matzah forever in the 19th century. And this triggered one of the great ruptures in modern Jewish history that something is the Industrial Revolution. You're all familiar with the Industrial Revolution, which began in the 18th 
century. Anyone know what year? I think in the late 1700s was the Industrial Revolution. And that actually caused a huge, huge, huge uh, de- debacle. I don't know if I want to call it farivel, but the Industrial Revolution also caused a Jewish revolution where all of a sudden the matzah baking process changed as well. And what was, what happened then was, in the early 1800s, a man by the name of Isaac Singer, who lived in France, he invented the first matzah baking machine. That's right, the first machine to bake matzahs with. And at the time it received approval of a number of French and German rabbis, it was used by some of those Jews living there in France and Germany, maybe England, basically the Western European communities. And that was quite distant from the less progressive Jewish communities in Eastern Europe. Western Europe tended to be more progressive. I'm not talking here about reform per se, I'm just saying that they were more advanced. Whereas Eastern Europe was still in the shtetl, was still reserved, and although the scholars there were brilliant, I mean, look at where did most of our halachic works come from, the rabbis, the scholars, the sages in Eastern Europe. But the development of this matzah machine at first was no big deal. In France and Germany and England it was accepted, and it was welcome, you can imagine. Wow, the matzah baking process is made easier for us, wonderful. It was, it was embraced. But then, in 1856, a Jewish baker in Vienna created a more efficient, you know, you look at your apps, right? Our phones, the apps tend to get more advanced with time. Well, the same thing, the matzah baking machine was developing and there were newer versions. And what happened was, with the newest machine that was invented, and developed in Vienna, Austria. This now reached, Austria is closer to Poland, Galicia, Ukraine, Russia. And that's when everything broke loose. What happened was in 1856, there was, you know, by the way, the American Civil War took place in 1861. So we Jews beat it again. We had our own civil war in Europe in 1856, five years before the American Civil War. And of course, though, thank God, our types of civil wars are not with with artillery and spears, but rather was a war of ideas. And let's analyze a little bit of the different opinions that came out in support or opposition to the matzah baking system. Give me a moment here, just want to fix something up on my computer. Okay, let's continue. So in 1859, there was a famous, very famous rabbinic authority in, in Galicia, the rabbi of Brody, named Rabbi Shlomo Kluger. Rabbi Shlomo Kluger was considered one of the two, one of the true Torah giants of his time. Well, you're talking about 150 years ago. And he was asked whether matzah made by machine was acceptable. His answer was an unequivocal no, it was not. 
He wrote a letter in which he said that we should not take any example from the German Jews who've been using the machine matzah. Rather, we should follow halacha. How do we call it in, in Fiddler on the Roof? Tradition, tradition. We have our traditions. Let's not break the tradition. And he says not to use the machine-made matzah. And he said one cannot cite a precedent from the practices of the German community. Of course, what was one of the problems of the German community? That's where Reform Judaism was being developed at the time. And there was tremendous opposition to think that, you know, here you have Jews who are progressing, and who knows what they're going to accept next. They're changing all of Judaism. I'm not sure if that was all the reason behind his answer. We'll discuss some of the reasons of the answers in a moment. But that was certainly part of it. And he was supported by many of the rabbis at his time. Rabbi Yitzchak Meir Altar of Gur was known as the Chadushi Harim. And Rabbi Chaim, um, Rabbi Chaim Halberstam of Tzanz. And uh, which other rabbis? Rabbi, uh, he was known as the Divrei Chaim. Rabbi Avram Bernstein of Sochachev. And he's known as the Avnei Nezer, a very famous rabbi. Of course, the Lubavitcher Rebbe's at the time. The Rebbe Marash and the Rebbe Rashab. Virtually all the Hasidic masters of the time opposed the new invention, the machine matzah. And, you know, it really got heated up. In fact, one of the, um, one of the commentaries, uh, one of the journals of the time says, describes, there's a raging fire ignited in the Jewish community when we see this debate. And one of the rabbis comments, that uh, um, there's a whole broad acceptance of this innovation. Of course, there are many rabbis who supported and did accept the matzah, and it was causing a major rift, like I said, a civil war in the Jewish community in that sense. Well, let's talk about those who defended the matzah. Among them was Rabbi Yosef Shaul Nathanson of Lvov in uh, Lemberg, which was formerly Galicia, now Western Ukraine. He after personally watching a trial, one of the matzah baking machine, he said it's permissible. He watched it and said there's absolutely no doubt that any God-fearing person can eat matzah from the machine. What's wrong with progress? What's wrong with accepting a new invention? You know, we after all have to be developing with the times and Rabbi Nathanson gave his approval, his stamp of approval for the matzahs. And many others joined him, including Rabbi Avram Shmuel Sofer of Pressburg of Bratislavia, known as the Kasav Sofer, who was the son of the Hassam Sofer. Rabbi Yisrael Lipschitz, who was of, of Danzig, Germany, very famous uh, rabbinic authority, the author of Tiferes Yisrael on the Mishnah. There was Rabbi Yaakov Ettringer of, Alt- of Altona. There were many others. Most of the non-Hasidic Hungarian rabbis supported the machine matzah, supported the progress. And as the matzah baking machine spread to other parts of the Jewish world, many rabbinic personalities from Lithuania, from Jerusalem, from the Mediterranean, Sephardic countries, all were lending their approval to the use of the machine matzah. And this debate really, truly became heated. Rabbi Kluger published 10 letters defending his decision against the usage of these matzahs. He called it, the declaration to the house of Israel. Rabbi Nations published 20 letters defending his 
call against it, and he entitled his called the annulment bitul hadalavet Yisrael, the annulment of the declaration to the house of Israel, and it's going backward and forward. And just about every major rabbi in Europe at that point, the mid 1800s, was taking a position for or against. Of course, the question is why were some rabbis so against it, while other rabbis were for it? What was the basis of the argument and the matters of this dispute that was so heated? For what reason? And we'll be back in a moment and we will discuss this because this is something quite fascinating on its own. Just give me a moment here. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. And welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9 Chai FM. Today we're talking about the great matzah debate. So, why were so many rabbis opposed to the machine matzah? It's hard to sum up a debate that lasted for decades in one, one session right here. But let's at least touch on the key issues. And along the way we'll find out how round matzahs became square. One objection was that the intricacy of the machinery makes it extremely difficult to ensure that no dough remains in the grooves of the gears. You look at machinery, and machinery obviously has the machinery has all these intricate pieces, right? So one objection was that the intricacy of the machinery makes it extremely difficult to ensure that no dough remains inside the grooves and gears. If dough remnants would stick to the machine, then after 18 minutes, they would become chametz, and all the rest of the matzahs, all the subsequent batches of dough that are inserted into the machine would be considered chametz. So that's one reason that was explained by the Divrei Chaim, Rabbi Chaim Halberstam, as to his opposition with the machine matzah. Now, the defending rabbis, they conceded to that opposition, to that reason, and that they, they realized the insides had to be cleaned much better perhaps than they were doing. So their response was, we're going to clean the insides of the machine between each and every single batch of matzah that's produced. And they also decided that the round-shaped matzah, which was the tradition for thousands of years, since we Jews were eating matzah, they would make it into, that, would, that, that still poses a problem, that, that you have round and that the pieces that are being, I guess, cut off are remaining inside. So what was the solution to that? Very simple. If you're solution-oriented, well, they decided they're going to make it square-shaped. And in fact, let me read to you um, from the words of one of the rabbis at that time, in his responsa, in his Shailas Hachuvas, from Rabbi Mordechai Leib Winkler. He was one of the Gedolim then, and he says, regarding the matter of machine-made matzahs, the primary concern is that the matzahs are fashioned in the traditional round shape, leaving over pieces of various sizes. These are then used repeatedly in the machine in the next batch, and the trimmings of that in the following batch. In this situation, there is certainly a real concern that it might become actual chametz. But if the matzahs are made into square shape, then there's no longer this concern. So you see, solution-oriented. Found the solution. So that was one problem. Another concern was 
Another concern was that the machine's motor would get excessively hot, heating up the dough to the point where there, where it might cause it to ferment prematurely. Right? Warm dough ferments very swiftly. So perhaps also the metal material of the machine would cause the dough to ferment instantly even. And this was another concern that many of the rabbis had. In fact, um, the, the Rebbe Rashab said he discussed this with an expert chemist. And according to chemistry, as soon as the dough touches the metal of the wheels of the machine, then immediately it ferments. So that was the Rebbe Rashab's concern. And another issue that was mentioned, Rabbi Shlomo Kluger, was that due to the pressure of the machine, it heats up and warms up the dough. So therefore, that was another concern. So the rabbis argued that again, there is room for concern that in case the machine, the fermentation can... Sheila, you're muted. I'm muted. Thank you. So again, the concern was, how, what do you deal with it? And of course, as long as you're solution-oriented... Again, what's going on? You're getting unmuted. Just keep it muted, please. Thank you. Unless you have a question. So again, dealing with this, the rabbis had to find solutions. And of course, as long as you're solution-oriented, there are ways that you can make the machine work more efficiently and to solve these problems as well. So one solution was to make the matzahs square. The other problem about the dough heating up that was another concern. And in fact, there's another concern that many of the rabbis had at the time. And that was a social concern. Many poor families were dependent on the many jobs that the matzah bakery provided for their livelihood. If machines replaced the handmade matzah bakeries, then these ingredients people, uh, th then the, uh, then the uh, people at the time, you have um, poor people, indigent people, who were the ones who would, Mix the ingredients of the flour water, creating the matzah. Even though it was very simple, it was menial labor. And this was job that was given. It was like, you know, think of uh, Yale here. It's a program in our community. Always Jewish communities had solutions to help people who needed jobs. And this was very simple labor. And they didn't want to take away this work from the people who needed it most. So that was another concern. Then there was... Another idea that was mentioned was that while the human hand is able to discern when you're mixing the dough, if there's any remaining bits of wheat which didn't get fully kneaded into the dough, a machine isn't able to do that. Machines don't have the ability to check if the dough is properly all mixed together and there's no kernels left inside. You need hands that will have that sensitivity to actually feel it. There was even more concern. I got there was a lot of concerns. What I mentioned before from Rabbi Kluger was it had to do with the times where they felt that the modernization, there was what they called the Enlightenment movement. And the Enlightenment movement really posed a challenge, a threat to the traditional Orthodox Jewish community. And that, that emancipation of Jews at the time where France, for example, under Napoleon was offering freedom, which is great, we welcome the freedom, but unfortunately freedom of religion to many transformed into freedom from religion. Many rabbis were very weary of any 
opportunity where there was some kind of a development and progression in Judaism, very wary what they accept inside the shtetl. They didn't want to have those influences that would perhaps weaken the tradition. And so many of the rabbis really were, were skeptical. They were, and perhaps cynical. I don't want to say cynical in a negative way. I mean, they, they, they feared what any enlightenment is going to bring to their community. They perceived it as some kind of a threat. And so they didn't want that wrong message to come across to their communities. And therefore they preferred not to accept any modern or modernizing of their Judaism, of how we're going to bake the matzahs. Now the most debated issue actually, and one that's still quite relevant today, has to do with another matter, and that matter is called Lishma. What's Lishma? And here, this is a fascinating, one of the details of the intricacies and the laws of, of, of baking matzah that the Torah tells us. The Torah says the words, Ushmartem es hamatzos. That's where the term shmura comes from. You should watch over, you should guard, which is what we discussed at the beginning of today's discussion about shmura matzah. Torah says you have to guard the matzah. What does it mean to guard? Are we guarding it from thieves? Well, I'm not sure if that only applies for matzah. Thieves take anything. Now, does it mean we should guard it from becoming chametz? Well, that too is obvious. We want if we want it to be matzah, we have to certainly ensure and guard it from becoming chametz. So the Talmud explains that what does it mean when the Torah tells us ushmartem as hamatzas that we should watch over the unleavened cakes? That it means that we have to guard it and ensure that it doesn't become chametz with the conscience intent. This is called lishma. That means from the very beginning of the procedure of the process, in once from the time of harvest, that we ensure that this wheat is being harvested and any production involved in it is all for the purpose and the sake of matzah for Pesach. So if a person is needing unleavened dough for, for any other purpose, maybe I want to make some, bake some cakes for my son's bar mitzvah in three months. Or maybe just for whatever, for my own family's enjoyment. Then guess what? It's not shmura. It's not guarded, protected. It's not lishma for the purpose of Pesach. It wasn't for the purpose of Pesach. Can't use it on, on Pesach. And this is discussed in the Gemara in Tractate Psachim. It says that one might think you could discharge your obligation of eating matzah on Pesach with the loaves, uh, loaves of the Toda, or Rekike Nazir. That's the thanksgiving offerings and the wafers of the Nazarite, which were also matzah. The Gemara tells us, no, because the Torah says, Ushamartem es matzah, you should guard the matzah, it teaches us that it has to be unleavened bread, which is guarded for the sake of fulfilling the obligation of eating matzah. So it excludes any other type of matzah. That means if you baked matzah, remember I mentioned you can find matzah in, in the supermarket, but if it's not matzah that was baked for the sake of Pesach, it's not kosher for Pesach matzah. So intent, this is called lishma, such an integral component 
of the matzah baking process. Now, some of the rabbis argue that the machines have no way of consciously thinking and intending that they're baking, that they're kneading the dough and they're baking it for the sake of matzah on Pesach. Now, this is a matter, of course, that can be debated. Can a machine have intent? Well, let me ask you, can the rolling pins that you're using have intent? So this was a little bit of a debate. Some said, well, the machine matzah certainly are not qualified to fulfill that obligation because they can't have the intent. And other rabbis argued, well, you know, that uh, a human being is the only one who has the intent. So just like the rolling pin itself is not having the intent, but it's the person who's rolling the pin, not the pin itself. So perhaps you could say the same thing, that it's not the electricity itself that's having the intent, because electricity doesn't have that mind. But rather the one who activates the machine, the one who pushes the button and turns it on, that's the one who has the intent. It's the koach adam, it's the manpower at that first moment of the activity of, of, of activating the machine, of turning it on. And then of course the electric current will flow through on its own. So of course this was a debate and there were many such arguments backward and forward. And of course, some rabbis still to this day prefer the machine, thinking that the machine has certain benefits that a human being doesn't. The machine does everything with precision and is infallible, although that's not necessarily true. And of course, there is the other perspective, like we promote here at Chabad, which is the benefit of the handmade matzah, and in fact, let me read you something from Rabbi Akiva Sofer who says, regarding machine matzahs, if a human inserts the plug into the outlet connecting the electrical wires, creating an electrical current, it is considered human action that governs the entire baking process. So you see there were even rabbis who really promoted the machine. Well, let's go a little bit more forward in recent history. Something happened in America, in the Golden of Medina, which made great steps towards mainstreaming the matzah, the machine matzah bakery. And this was, of course, the, there was a rabbi named Rabbi Manashevitz, Rabbi Dovber Manashevitz. In fact, his real name was not Rabbi Dovber Manashevitz. His real name was Rabbi Dovber Abramson. I didn't even know if his name was Dover. What happened was he was escaping Europe and in order to get out of Europe, he, a lot of people, they wanted to save their lives. This was a time when people realized the pogroms and all the other oppression happening there. It was time to get out of the old country. And so he got the passport of a deceased man named Dover Banashevitz. So I'm not even sure what Rabbi Abramson's first name was. Whatever the case, he and his wife got to America. They arrived in Cincinnati. And there he got a job as a shochet. He was a ritual slaughterer. He was a rabbi in the community there, shechting meat for people. And of course, he wanted to ensure with Pesach coming that his family had matzah to eat. Well, he started making some matzah himself for his family in his basement. But as time progressed and there were more people requesting his matzah, demand was growing. So all of a sudden, he started to utilize the machine for his matzah production. 
And demand kept on growing and growing, not only from the Jewish community, but there was from an ex- a completely unexpected market. At the time, Cincinnati was a major starting point for pioneers who were heading west during the gold rush. And they needed food that was non-perishable to take along on their lengthy, dangerous trip. Matzah, of course, is a great solution because it has a good keeping ability, ideal for these pioneers who were mostly not Jewish. And stopping in Cincinnati along the way, lots of people were buying Rabbi Manashevitz's matzahs. So here comes a rabbi who's just baking matzah for his family and friends, and all of a sudden he's got such demand, he generated such large revenue that it's unbelievable the, the staggering numbers of how big his matzah bakery became. By 1900, Rabbi Manashevitz opened a massive matzah factory. He switched from coal to gas ovens, which allowed for better temperature control. He built a new oven. At the time, it was the largest oven on earth. Instead of just using machines to roll out the dough, Manashevitz established a fully automated factory with machines that were doing the mixing and the perforating and cutting the dough. The entire process, all automated. And the factory was soon turning out 75,000 pounds of matzah each day which was mostly bought by non-Jews who were heading west. And unlike irregular and frequently charred hand matzahs, those matzahs they made by Manashevitz were uniform, they were standardized, and people liked, you know, you could think about the, the crispy, crunchy taste of the matzah. Now at first, his machine, um, he had no need for the lishma because most of his customers weren't Jewish anyways. But then he decided, may as well make all the matzahs kosher for Pesach. And as his company grew, eventually he held more than 50 patents, 50 patents relating to the process of baking matzah. And in 1920, they claimed that they were capable of producing, that's over 100 years ago, 1.25 million matzahs a day. Imagine that. Rabbi Manashevitz, became immensely wealthy. They say he was very charitable. And he transformed matzah from a product that historically was just eaten for Pesach to a widely available and inexpensive item that year-round Jews and non-Jews alike can enjoy. By the way, on another note, the original matzah was not the crispy, crunchy kind that we know today. The original matzah was more like a lafa. It was soft. It was thick, according to the Gemara, it was about a hand, about a, about a thumb's thickness. That's how the width of it was. The reason that changed was because with time, the sages realized the dough wasn't properly being mixed properly, and sometimes they, they were finding not fully mixed dough inside. But I could tell you personally, when I went to India, and in other Sephardic communities, people still enjoy the matzah as it originally was, the original matzah. Well, with Manashevitz's introduction of matzah, he became, you know, think about it, he, he started selling the, the ground matzahs for Knedlach. People enjoy the matzah balls. And then today, think about the Manashevitz company producing all types of products, the Mano Mano Shevitz. They've got everything kosher and the company's worth 
millions or hundreds of millions of dollars to this day. So that's the story with matzah. Today you can get a box of machine matzah. I haven't checked the price, but it's not too much. Yet the handmade matzah is going to cost you a lot more. And of course, one wonders why. Why is it with those cheap matzahs you could make so much from matzah bright to matzah balls to matzah latkes to matzah stuffing and matzah kugel and you name it matzah pizza, all of that, yet the handmade shmura matzah is still costing an arm and a leg. Now, of course, I tell you the story not only because it's a fascinating piece of our history, but because I think it answers a fundamental question that we have. How did we survive through all these years under the most impossible circumstances as we have? And perhaps the answer can be in this very civil Jewish debate, this great war, this dispute about the matzah. I know at first it just looks like what's going on, couldn't the rabbis find a way to just work it out? And they did. As you saw, some were very solution-oriented, identified the problems and fixed them.